1: Let's face it, the smartest people don't all work in your organization. This thought has been shared by many leaders, such as Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and several others. It's originally attributed to Bill Joy, the co-founder of Sun Microsystems. He said, the smartest people in the world don't all work for us. Most of them work for someone else. Kind of makes sense. To benefit from the creativity of smart people who are external to your organization, you need some way to find them and then attract them so that you can get them to contribute their brain power to what your organization needs. And there are time-tested ways to accomplish this, including traditional open innovation, incubators, using startups, and the like. Another approach is a partner program. And Ford Motor Company has used this approach for decades. Through continuously learning and improving, they are a leader in this approach, and they provide answers for others that might be considering a partner program. To explain how their system works and tips also for implementing such a program, Ed Krauss joins us. His title is the Global Manager External Alliances Research and Advanced Engineering at Ford Motor Company. He has global responsibility for developing cutting-edge technology and competitive advantage for Ford by developing relationships and collaborative projects involving universities and partner companies. Anyone that's interested in open innovation or more formal partner programs, I'm sure will find this discussion valuable. And I hope you enjoy it. Remember, I take notes for you. You'll find the show notes for this episode at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 214. Enjoy the discussion. Ed, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Happy to be here, Chad. Appreciate the opportunity. Oh, I'm glad to hear about the alliance program that you are part of. A previous guest connected us. And you specifically are responsible for the external alliances that are part of the innovation strategy. there at Ford Motor Company. I wondered if you could just start with giving us kind of a description of what that program is.
2: Sure. Uh, The team I lead is responsible globally for R&D alliances uh, with universities, national laboratories, and a few corporate uh, partnerships as well. The lion's share of our activity uh, is with universities. Uh, Ford has been working with universities since the 1950s. Wow. We maybe first started trying to modernize our approach in around 1990, with something we creatively named the University Research Program, URP. Uh, We've done over 900 awards to over 150 different schools in that program. And then in 1998, so just about 20 years ago, um, we formed our first strategic alliance uh, with MIT. Uh, In 2006, we added alliances with the University of Michigan and Northwestern. That's sort of our 2.0 model, if you will, based on our learnings from the MIT relationship. And then in recent years, we've added a few others. So have a good host of strong universities uh, with which we have alliances in the U.S. and Europe, and then quite a variety
1: of smaller relationships uh, worldwide. Wow. That's a lot of connections. So mostly universities, few national uh, programs and some corporations. Yep. When you said that you've given a 900 awards, what is an award?
2: An award in the context of the URP program is a granted three-year project. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what's called an unrestricted grant. So we don't have any specific contractual deliverables, but we also don't pay university overhead. So you don't get any IP, but you get the work at two-thirds the cost. That's a minority of the type of work we do. Most of our work is under the alliances, and it does have IP terms, and it does bear overhead. Hmm. But the URP, the 950, have been those unrestricted grants over the years.
1: Okay. There, there's some details in there if we have time we might tease out. Sure. But before going down, down some of those details, I'm curious. This has been around a long time, right, and then formalized in the 90s. What was going on at the time to, to start this, right? What was the motivation at Ford to start an alliance program like this?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think there were several factors. Uh, one, universities in the late 90s really looked ahead and they forecast a significant decline in government funding. Hmm. Um, since World War II, the U.S. government has poured a lot of money into universities to do research. Still does, but at that time, the thought was that that was going to be going down. the same time, you know, traditional corporate research labs were also less financially sustainable, mm-hmm. and companies were looking for more research outside. And the existing models for company-university interaction were really, really primitive. Um, and I think people realized there was a lot of opportunity. In Ford's case specifically, our CEO at the time was Alex Trotman, and he served on a board with Chuck Vest, who was the president of MIT at that time. And they got to talking about this and decided that Ford and MIT would embark on a strategic alliance to sort of formulate a new model huh. for us on how to work with schools. And MIT actually engaged in a number of these alliances, uh, launching in 1998. Um, and I think the first thing we learned was spending money is easy, getting value is challenging. And um, after two years of Ford senior executive, um, was sent out to live in Cambridge and I was hired to work on the Dearborn side with him um, to find out what worked and what didn't work, uh, how we could get value out of the MIT relationship and that led directly to this 2.0 model um, that we employed with Michigan and Northwestern in 06 and we've evolved that over time We're now calling it a 3.0 model um, with 11 large U.S. and European schools and then smaller ones worldwide in australia and china
1: okay when it comes to getting value out of those lions partners i totally appreciate this it's easy to spend the money right to to give the money to the partners give us some examples of of the kinds of projects that have occurred that have produced value you know just to know what kinds of things are coming back to ford that you're taking advantage of
2: there was one case where when we first came out with our sync system, that's the voice control system we use mm-hmm. to operate a lot of the entertainment functions in Ford and Lincoln vehicles. Um, there was concern that this would be distracting and that this shouldn't be, you know, this shouldn't be allowed in vehicles. And Ford had extensive data showing that our policy of eyes on the road, hands on the wheel and using voice control for telephone calls and entertainment control was actually safer than looking away and fiddling with buttons. And as much as we made this point and showed the data, the regulators said, well, you're biased, it's your data. So we worked with the University of Michigan that has thousands of hours of um, real-world driving data with one camera outside the vehicle and one camera facing inward. So anytime an outside scenario came up that was dangerous, you could see exactly what the driver was doing. And this footage completely vindicated Ford's approach that the voice control uh, it's people almost have accidents when they look away from the road scene and fiddle with their phone even if they're holding the phone up to their ear um, as long as their eyes are on the road and their hands on the wheel they're much safer than if they're looking away okay so that was a key thing where the university work proved our point and they were a neutral broker and their data was seen as objective another is um this pro trailer backup feature we have where the F one hundred and fifty, it's a class exclusive feature where you do the gas and you spin a little knob that, uh, shows sort of crosshairs and or sights on your screen. And then the truck does all the counter steering and backs up the trailer for you. That was originally proven, uh, feasible in a collaborative project. Um, also with university of Michigan coincidentally. And, um, we then produced a feature and developed you know, a very a capability that our customers really like.
1: And it's one of the reasons why I want to get an F-150. Also in part because I did take a factory tour there near Dearborn of the F-150s getting made. And my son and daughter and I just fell in love with the, <laughs> the, the making of these things and yeah, that feature too. It's
2: a great plant. And if you haven't been by in the last two years, it'd be worth another trip. They've completely redone the tour experience. Um, and, it, and it's much improved. It was good before, but it's really fantastic now.
1: Yeah, I, I was there about three months ago, and it was quite enjoyable. Oh, and I saw it. Good. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, and I forget the number. You you might know it, but a, a new truck comes off the line like every, what, 30 it's, seconds, two minutes? That's uh, about one two, a minute. Okay, yeah, uh, it's really fast.
2: Assembly line 60 vehicles.
1: You can push a little higher than that, but... yeah. It's About just, one a minute. It's just amazing. So, okay, enough. Anyone out there that wants to get an F one hundred and fifty, good thing to do. That's right. On these, so I, the the first one was a good example. I, you had a problem, and you gave it to uh, alliance partner, uh, U of Michigan, to help provide some evidence and te- uh, do testing on this. For the backup camera, did that idea? I'm just curious how where that originated. Yeah,
2: it's not the camera so much; it's the algorithm that controls it. That was a Ford originated idea. Okay. And it it sounds fairly easy, but anyone who's backed up a trailer realizes it's it's very difficult. (laughs) And if you back up one trailer with a certain length, and then you put another trailer that's two feet shorter or longer, that changes the dynamics. So it was a very hard software programming problem. And we weren't sure it could be solved with the compute power in the vehicle. Um, And then we were able to show through some clever work by the professor and the Ford team uh, that it could. And as with anything from the university, nothing's ready for prime time. You know, We had then initiated a large internal effort to productionize this, involve suppliers, get the hardware built, and so on. But without that piece that we did with University of Michigan, um, we would not have known it was possible, mm-hmm. and that program wouldn't have come. So even though it was perhaps a small fraction of the effort, it was absolutely indispensable. We wouldn't have the feature without that collaboration.
1: Okay. Are most of these Alliance grants that are being provided, are, are they working on the specific sort of problem, right? Like here's something we, we're thinking about doing and where we we need a solution, like in the case of the algorithm and, and working on the, the computer hardware available. And are some of them also more, I don't know if there's any R&D type ones that are more open-ended, right?
2: It's a good mixture. Okay. Uh, we
1: actually run you
2: know, hundreds of projects at universities at any given time. Um, and it, it's a mixture across hmm. the technical spectrum as well as the risk spectrum. Uh, there are some that are fairly applied, uh, pretty easy to determine an ROI, uh, but there are also uh, things that are much further out um, you know work with very new materials uh, work in quantum computing, uh, AV related work. Okay. So we, do a two-way solicitation process where we solicit ideas from within Ford and we match them with our university partners, but we also take ideas from our university partners and see if they're interested Hmm. in Ford. So that gives us a a good breadth of more fundamental versus more applied.
1: Yeah, in a way to inject ideas outside on new technologies, new capabilities. Um, Kind of an open innovation model of Getting those ideas.
2: It is. It, it's a blend. You know, it's certainly there are certain commercial rights we have to have because mm-hmm. it's a competitive marketplace. Sure. Uh, you know, we have a host of patents around that trailer backup technology, and that's why we're the only company that has it. But yet, it was developed outside, so it it's never going to be completely non-competitive. But you know, we're strong believers that partnering with world-class outside partners will give a competitive advantage to Ford. Yep.
1: The details actually make this work. Again, back to this: easy to spend the money, a little harder to get the value out. When you're putting together the the partnerships, what are you looking for? To you know, it has to be a win-win partnership, right? Absolutely. What are the characteristics of that? How how do you create that win-win? So, certainly at the high level, it starts with making
2: the the win-win at the alliance or the relationship level. Um, you know, the universities, you, the win for them's pretty easy. And as I kid them, I say, you win all the time and you win right away. Uh, they get research funding, they hire students, and whether or not the work's successful, they're going to get publications mm. and they're going to get interesting industry-relevant problems to work on. So that happens for them all the time. You know, what Ford needs is we need appropriate IP rights so that, you know, if we need to commercialize um, or implement and or commercialize um some of the work, you know, we have the ability to do so reasonably uh, to improve our product or process. And you know, we tend not every project is successful. We take we take on a lot of ambitious work. A lot of it doesn't pan out, but certainly we're having enough successes that are panning out that pays for you know a growing investment at universities. So at the high level, the universities win each time. Um, and we win later on down the line, but the work has been worthwhile enough for us that it, it funds the enterprise. On a project basis, you know, when I first came into the work, I was concerned. Some predecessors had warned me that the universities only want to do fundamental work and we want to mm-hmm. do applied. But one of the happy surprises was being a big global company with sophisticated product and good scientists on our end. There's a huge overlap between what's academically interesting uh, and worthy of a PhD and what are relevant problems to us. So, happily, that's it's really something that almost never comes up, that the ideas we propose are not academically fundamental enough.
1: It did come to my mind at first, even though I've done the PhD work, that through this, there are people working on these projects that are able to turn this into PhD research as well. and.
2: Almost every Ford project has a PhD student on it. Um, Some is done by postdocs, occasionally masters, but for the most part, students are uh, earning their PhDs through this work.
1: There's just a a lot of goodness in that. And and I realize those who have not pursued a PhD, you know, I got into it. I never thought I would go back to school. I just got fascinated about a product management problem, right? Why are we inconsistent delivering quality solutions some of the time? Yeah. Being able to contribute to that and – help provide the setting for fundamental research that leads to an applied solution and someone working through their PhD, that's great. That's just a great resource to to be a part of. I know if I was a traditional PhD student these days, that would just make me feel really good to be part of a project someone was funding that, that was doing something new. Yeah. That's pretty cool.
0: I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM Experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at the slash RPM.
1: For those alliance partners, so you, you listed a few that you have that you have strong relationships with, right, that came into being here, um, like U of Michigan at MIT. What are you looking for in an alliance partner? Because I'm sure, again, it has to be the win-win. How do you go about identifying them and selecting them?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a superb question. Um, universities vary widely in their um quality as partners. Mm-hmm. Uh some of them, you know, we've picked them for a variety of reasons in a variety of ways over the years. But I think now we're very purposeful um about how we pick them. Uh, we look my team and I specifically look for competence and cooperation in corporate relations. Um, is the university going to be a cooperative partner? Are they easy to work with? obviously on the technical side we're looking for um technical ele- uh, excellence in relevant areas um and but that's only part of it you know it's my finding that within any given tier of schools say you know top 10 next 20 and maybe next 40 after that mm-hmm. for a company as broad as ford with a lot of technical interests one school is not really much better than another um within any given tier but yet they differ widely in their corporate relations, competence, and cooperation. Uh, The technology licensing offices also have a very strong sway. Um, There are sort of three factors that drive them. Some are heavily driven by startups. And if that's the case, being an existing company, that often leads to a conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, If all they want is they want to spin out startups. Uh, Other companies... Sort of Hold out hope that they're going to win on royalties, that you know, there's a Warfarin or a Gatorade or Google just in their organization. If they just dig long enough, they'll find it and then they can right. just sit back and cash the checks. But I think most schools increasingly are driven by an understanding that success for them is growing the research investment on campus. Um, especially when they're working with existing companies. And that tends to work well. Those tend to be the most aligned. Um, doesn't mean that there can't be startups. Doesn't mean that there can't be royalties. But those tend to lead to some misalignment. So we'd like to see high competence in corporate relations, a cooperative trust-based approach. We'd like to see a technology licensing office that's not um, solely driven by startups
1: and royalties, um, and of course, we want to see technical excellence. That's excellent, Ed. I appreciate you adding so much clarity there. Everyday Innovators, anyone looking at this path, I know this is a big audience for us, but all of us that are in medium-large companies that might be looking at a relationship with universities in particular, boy, Ed, you just gave us some very clear things to be considering for what uh, we might uh, look for in that relationship, so I appreciate that. When it comes to actually selecting you know, the topics that the partners work on, I think of it as a competitive situation. It's not necessarily that, but where you would give the same work to more than one partner to see what you get out of that, or how how do you divide this up?
2: Yeah, very good question. Companies tend to handle this very differently. Um, You know, over the last 10 years, universities have sort of cohered to a similar strategy of how they work with companies, but companies are still doing this very differently. Each company kind of does it its own way. Some Open up and just say, "Send us your ideas." Others do sort of a challenge problem that they pose. Right. Um, you know, we have this two-way thing where we're soliciting ideas on both sides. Um, we we certainly try and match key Ford priorities with the unique or superior capabilities that a university has um, when we're looking as a bigger relationship. For specific projects, um, you know, we certainly don't restrict any alliance partner from any particular area. You know, we pick them for certain reasons because they're good in certain ways. But I think nobody nobody has a good enough handle on what's going on at a university, and it's changing so quickly that new expertise will crop up in unexpected places. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to be too prescriptive. Um, we run an annual merit-based proposal development and selection process. So we take ideas regardless of whether they originated at Ford or at a school, and they evolve up into proposals. And then we take those proposals through a very rigorous multi-phase process, ultimately culminating in a review with our CEO or CTO, chief technical officer. And um, then we fund the best ones and then we start over. We certainly have the ability to fund projects one-off. Um, but from a stewardship standpoint and making sure that we're putting our money to the best projects, having this annual merit-based process uh, is a real advantage.
1: Okay. And so is the cadence on an annual basis then for you know, the proposal and then the work that's kind of done is fits that year range or sometimes are projects on a, are on a very different sort of schedule?
2: Yeah, you know, The proposal development and selection process is on an annual basis, but mm-hmm. the projects themselves run different lengths. For example, every April, we officially open uh, the competition, both the URP and for all of our alliances. And we travel to campus doing requests for proposal talks. Uh, we announce it internally uh, and, and give big talks here. And then we do the matchmaking of the ideas. We generate the proposals. Uh, in August, we close the competition, and then for the next couple of months, we go through a very rigorous five-phase assessment and approval process, and then we fund some of the work, but most of it is funded in the first quarter of the following year, and then we start over. Now, once the project is started, it will typically start in the first quarter or maybe the second quarter of the year. It will then run for two or three years, um, but the funding's already been allocated, so the once it's funded, it's sort of on its own timeline. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of projects that will extend for whatever reason or another, uh, and we're fine with that. Okay, But they're typically two to three years in length.
1: That kind of bounds the, the efforts here. For projects that are maybe a little bit less applied, more R&D, looking for new technology that might might come out of this, do you give a proposal to more than one partner?
2: Yeah, when we go to campus for our request for proposal talk, we highlight some of our key needs um to those schools. And we highlight the same needs to all the schools. Mm-hmm. So we will frequently get multiple proposals coming in uh in very similar areas. And then the Ford subject matter experts, they'll interview the different professors and decide which one they think is the best chance. Or occasionally we will in fact pursue the same problem uh with multiple schools. Okay. Um but you know that can be costly. So you have to balance the you know, pick the best one versus, you know, run two of them, but then not get to fund work in another important area.
1: Right. It's that trade-off. And you have to look at the kind of the whole portfolio of proposals of needs that year and see what makes sense.
2: Sometimes we will actually do a project that involves multiple universities. Hmm. And, you know, universities, you know, each time you go to campus, you'll hear two things. One, you know, we're more industry-friendly than the other schools, and two, we're more interdisciplinary. And interdisciplinary, it's great when the problem requires it, but when it doesn't, it just adds more administrative burden and complexity. You know, some problems require interdisciplinary solutions, others don't. But when a problem does, um, we have in fact in the past involved multiple schools. And it's administratively, there's more burden running a three-way or a four-way project. Mm-hmm. But some of the projects can't be solved, you know, just between one school and, and us.
1: I don't know how proprietary the nature of the proposals is uh, what i want to ask you is uh if, there, if you can give us any insights into just existing categories or things that are being pursued right now sure because i imagine you know i'm and other listeners are thinking about well surely you're, you're doing some investigations on self-driving autonomous vehicles because everyone's doing that there's probably some material science work going on to lighten frames and the like who knows I, what what can you tell us
2: so AV work, we've been very public about that. Ford has done more AV work at universities than any other car company. We've mm-hmm. been doing it for over a decade, well over a decade, actually. Um, that's been a, an important part as that technology has evolved. All sorts of computing, uh, is interesting to us. You know, the vehicle is going from being a mechanical device to being, you know, some people would say a computer on wheels mm-hmm. connected to the cloud and networked to every other vehicle. Um, so, all sorts of computing is of interest uh, material science you know, which is what my own formal technical training was in remains a very big topic um, for fuel economy of course in the past car companies would just make the engine smaller and you know make the vehicle less fun to drive and that 's how they need okay. fuel economy but the the fuel economy laws are so and the regs are so strict now and so ambitious that you really have to attack the physics and you have to lighten the vehicle mm-hmm. uh, the f-150 for example can be up to 700 pounds lighter than the previous f-150 because it's an all aluminum body yeah a lot of that aluminum technology um, and manufacturing technologies associated with that have benefited from university work um, mobility Ford is really not just a car company anymore we're a car company but we also want to be the most trusted provider of mobility services. Mm-hmm. We've done a lot of mobility work at universities. Um, data analytics, that's something that we see as a strength in all areas of our business. We do a lot of analytics work uh, with schools. Um, and, of course, powertrain. you know, the, the internal combustion engine isn't going to go away, even as we do a lot of research on batteries and electrification.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We're also continuing to substantially improve combustion technologies to reduce emissions and CO2 and so
1: on. Yep. I'm just curious, was, was you know the Ford F-150, since it came up before, and I'm also fascinated with it, Yeah, th- that's an amazing engine that got introduced, what, three years ago, I think?
2: Yeah, the EcoBoost. Yep. Yeah.
1: The, it's just m- much more efficient, very powerful, coupled with the 10-speed transmission. Yep. It's amazing how it outperforms a much ind- bigger engine class from the previous generation. Did any of that, was any of that part of the Alliance program? specifically know
2: a lot of the background work on engines Mm -hmm. and how to make them more efficient. Certainly every year we do dozens of projects relating to uh, powertrain and engines. When that engine came in, it was was fascinating because everyone thought, oh, the purists have to have a V8. And it was really somewhat of a risky decision because Mm -hmm. pickups had always had the big V8. But Ford had the courage at that point to say, Look at the spec sheet. This will outperform a V8. And when you actually drive it, it's much more dynamic uh, than V8. So we ended up doing it. And the customers, you know, they didn't care if it was a V8 or not. They saw a superior option in that versus the competitors and versus the previous model. And they flocked to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they still do. It's a big advantage for us in selling the F 150. F 150 is just was the, this was the 42nd year when it's been the best selling truck in the U.S., and the EcoBoost engine's been a big part of that. And we hope the trailer back up, too. Yep. <laughs>
1: Which I have a trailer, so that's kind of a nice thing. It has a
2: very high take rate. The customers really like that. No one wants to back over their neighbor's mailbox or look like an amateur when they're launching their boat. So it's a great feature for us.
1: Yeah, good point. Yeah, just curious about that. I'm sure there's been lots of things that have made it into vehicles that we would be aware of. And the Sink was a good example. Didn't realize that Ford, it sounded like you were the ones that really pioneered the regulatory changes to have hands-free kind of uh, voice-activated interactions.
2: Yeah, it wasn't so much the regulatory change. It was stopping a bad regulation that mm. would have prevented that progress. Um, but effectively, it's the same thing. Yeah. We, we want to work very closely with regulators because safety is top priority for us, and we don't want regulations that make vehicles less safe. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a good example of Ford and the university working together. And then when the regulators saw the data, they made the right decision. So it was,
1: everybody did the right thing. So this has been going on for quite some time. You've been responsible for the global alliance of at Ford since 2008. It's clear from what you've been sharing, great details. You, you have learned a lot over the years of what works and what doesn't work. Anyone that's thinking right now about trying to build a relationship with a university, maybe start an alliance program, Quick advice that you would share uh, how to approach this? Sure.
2: I think first, you want to understand your own goals. Um, Is this about research? Is it about recruiting? Um, Is it sort of a radar and a window into what new technologies may be coming that you're not aware of? Is there a philanthropy piece? It doesn't mean that it can't be all of these, but a lot of companies are told, you know, let's go work with universities. Like, that's an end in itself. It isn't. It's a means. And to what is it a means? Um, so I think a lot of companies aren't clear enough in their goals when they go in. Um, as I said before, you want to choose your partners very carefully. Um, and to do that, you benchmark your peers. Uh, I think probably uh, rarely does a month go by when I don't benchmark at least one of my peers. Sure. Uh, some companies I've been benchmarking every year for over a decade, and, and vice versa. It's always two-way. But you want to talk to them because there is a high degree of consensus among people who do my job at different companies, uh, as far as which universities are cooperative and friendly and which ones are very difficult and high friction. Um, it, it doesn't take many phone calls to figure out which schools you're, con- you know, that whether the schools you're considering, um, fall under the cooperative or the not so cooperative category. Mm-hmm. Um, So that's certainly understand your goals, choose your partner carefully by benchmarking. I think a lot of people say, well, you know, how do I find out my peers at other companies? A professional society is a good idea. There are a number of them. Um, I'm active in the UIDP, the University Industry Demonstration Program. And that is a very good group. It's got a better balance of industry. Uh, than most of the other groups who tend to be sort of heavy on academics. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the thought leaders at both companies and universities are involved in UIDP. So going to their, joining up there, going to a, a conference there, you'll talk to more than enough people to get a good read on the schools you might be considering. And I think finally, hold yourself to an ROI-based metric. Uh, initially, you know, companies don't want to have ROI on their university work, and universities don't want it because they think if it doesn't get ROI, the money goes away. But it's really, that should be confronted because the risk is on the other side. If there are, is no ROI, as soon as bad times come, the university work will be cut.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And both universities and companies should work on projects, at least some of which will have ROI. You know, a lot of them won't. But it's sort of like a portfolio; some of them have to come through, so they pay for all the others. Um, I've seen a number of very big companies um, go up and down in their university funding, some almost to the point of stopping it completely uh, as the economic times changed because there was no r o i you know funny story when Ford was first looking to work with MIT we benchmarked a number of companies i say we my predecessors. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 1998, and they found one company that they thought was really quite good at this. Um, and I got a call in about 2005 from someone who said, you know, I think I'm your counterpart. I work at company X. Um, I understand you benchmarked us on university work. And I said, well, I didn't. My predecessor did, but I've spoken with him and I've seen the report. And he said, um, could I fly out and see you and could you explain to me what we used to know how to do? That's what had happened. You know, they didn't have any ROI. You know, mm-hmm. One VP went, one new VP came in, tough times came. He looked at the money and said, what are we getting for this? Didn't see anything and cut it. Yep. Um, and, and that's surprisingly common. So I think you're really not safe if you can't justify the investment in the long term. And that's for the best of both the school and the company to mm-hmm. be able
1: to do that. Because then the, the school might have a better chance of having future work as well if they're demonstrating the ROI. No question. So a lot of good insights in there for anyone looking into this. And as you're talking through that and uh, some of the other things we've hit on too, I thought even anyone just looking at an open innovation model with external parties, right, Uh, not just universities, a lot of still really relevant topics here to be aware of and help your thinking about what is that relationship with like between the company and those external parties still. Yeah. So very good. I appreciate that. As listeners know, we always love a good innovation quote. I asked you to share one with us. Can you do that and tell us about why you chose that one?
2: It's very timely. Just the other day, a colleague reminded me of Bill Joy's quote, uh, co-founder of Sun Microsystems. He said, no matter who you are, most of the smartest people work for someone else. Mm -hmm. And I think that perfectly encapsulates why even a big, heavily resourced, integrated company like Ford needs to work Uh, with universities and world-class partners, right? No matter how big or good you think you are in your area, there's just a whole lot more smart people in the rest of the world than there is just within your relatively small company.
1: It's a great quote. And it actually gets a question that I had lingering in my mind, which was why not just throw more money at this internally? And I know I have my own answers for that as well, but it, it ties into that that you're getting the advantage of new thinking from people that aren't biased with the assumptions that always make. Because when we just start working together, Ford's a big company. But still, we kind of have our perspectives and bias because we're doing that work all the time. And we need some external influences to look at things differently.
2: Yeah, external, you can be much nimbler going and quickly starting a university project than you can building a building and hiring your own people. Absolutely. So the agility to it is important. The outside perspective is important. You may look into it and then find it isn't something you want to pursue. Well, then you haven't made a big long-term investment. So mm-hmm. I think universities certainly bring capabilities that uh, nicely supplement the strong capabilities we have internally.
1: Very good. What do you want to leave us with? You, you mentioned before the benchmarking with peers. If anyone is listening that has a program in place and wants to you know, maybe share some data with you, uh, you know, share, uh, collaborate in some sense, um, Just uh, how do you want to leave this in terms of uh, people following up?
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm active in UIDP, as I mentioned. Uh, I think it's a great organization for anyone who does my sort of work. Uh, I'll be at the uh, fall meeting down at Ohio State. I hope to be either a panelist or speaker on university startups and mm-hmm. the pros and cons of how that affects relationships with existing companies. But would certainly welcome meeting people there. Uh, or, you know, if counterparts reach out to you, I'd be happy for some um, offline mutual benchmarking. I think, you know, to summarize the university work was really primitive around 2000 when I began, and there's been so much progress. And that progress has really come from companies understanding universities better, what they're good at, what they're not so good at, what their Mm -hmm. incentives are, and universities understanding company motivations better. So if presenting to a forum like this further increases that understanding, um, you know, I think it'll make things run more smoothly for us with our existing or new partners. So I appreciate the opportunity to share
1: and welcome feedback. Absolutely. Ed, thank you for your time. I will uh, uh, add a link to, because this is a new organization to me, to the UIPD for anyone that wants to look into that that isn't aware of it already. Anyone that wants to reach out to me directly, I'll be glad to put you in contact with Ed. Ed, thanks again. Chad, you're welcome. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes of the discussion with Ed at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 214. Keep
0: innovating! Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.